Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. My name's Nathan. I'm happy to see you here. Glad you joined us today. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'll ask one of the ushers to hand one to you. You're welcome to take these with you if you don't have one of your own. Um, so raise your hand, and somebody will hand one of these to you. Also, if you're seated on the edge of an aisle and there's a basket underneath your seat, would you pass the basket down? There's cards in the basket. should be some pens in the basket. If you'd like to hand off a card, an information card with your contact information on it so that we could uh, add you to our list, that would be fantastic. If you're okay with that, we send out a weekly newsletter. It's the top three things that are happening in our community that week, so it can be a real helpful way to just, in about 40 seconds, stay connected to what's happening in our church. Great. So glad you're here today. It's a privilege to worship with you. I'm excited to gather with you today and uh, to open up the Word. This, um, this is the Holy Bible. It's a book that's made up of about 66 other, or exactly 66 other books in our case. Uh, it's divided into two parts. There's the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, it's the scriptures of the Hebrew people. It's what Jesus refers to when he refers to the scriptures. It's made up of history books, collections of poetry, words of the prophets, songs of grief and celebration. And then there's the New Testament. Old Testament's what's written before Jesus was born. Second half of the Bible, or it's not quite half, but the second part is called the New Testament. It's the books that were written after Jesus was born, largely about the life and teachings of Jesus. It includes narratives, um, includes letters from early Christians to new churches. And the books of the New Testament were all written within the first century and in the Roman Empire. They were written in the first century which was the early days, the beginning, birthing of the, one of the most powerful um, states ever called the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is what emerged after 500 years of the Roman Republic, uh, which included things that, elements that we might be familiar with, like elected officials, a senate, a legislative process, uh, legal systems, things that are still now even served initially as sort of the foundation for Western civilization and still uh, are part of even our government here in the United States. And then the Roman Republic, which is considered to have started about 509 B.C., ran about 500 years until 27 B.C., the Republic emerged out of the Roman Kingdom. Okay, so there was a kingdom that was replaced by a republic that was then replaced by an empire. What event marked this critical shift after 500 years of Roman Republic to shift into the Roman Empire? 27 B.C. This guy named Gaius Octavius, he was the adopted son of Caesar, he rose to power through a series of civil wars, assassinations of his rivals, annexations of other countries like Egypt. And in 27 BC, the Roman Senate, 
which was part of the Roman Republic, the Senate formally granted Octavius supreme power over all of Rome and bestowed upon him the title Augustus, which means majestic or the increaser. And so Gaius Octavius becomes Caesar Augustus. He's the most powerful man in the world. He's the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he's the central figure of the Roman state religion, which is also known as the imperial cult. So Augustus was so unrivaled in his power that he was considered by the Romans to be a god. And the reason I think that it's so helpful to get a sense of the economic and the political dominance of the Roman Empire and the the cultural power of the imperial cult or the religion of the state is that this is the political and this is the economic backdrop for the birth of Jesus. In fact, the familiar opening lines of the second chapter of a book in the New Testament called Luke, which we often read at Christmas, refers specifically to Octavius by his official name. This is what Luke writes. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so the fact that Mary and Joseph, who were Jesus' parents, had to travel even though she was nine months pregnant, to the city of their birth, this place called Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, is just one example of the dominant influence of the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, and the way that his influence impacted just every part of everybody's life. It was impossible to be out of the realm of his influence because his power was that extreme. Caesar Augustus was super powerful. And not just because he controlled the mightiest army or military in the world, and not just because he governed one of the most expansive economic engines, but also because he influenced the way people felt. Right? He influenced the way people felt. His power, in other words, was a really big factor in the Roman population's sense of security. How they felt when they went to bed at night. And his power was a really big factor in the typical Roman citizen's sense of stability, how they felt while they did business during the day. His power influenced their security. His power influenced their sense of stability. In other words, to a significant degree, the people of Rome placed their hope in Caesar Augustus. Right? How do we know that? This is called the Prien Inscription. It gets its name from this city in modern-day Turkey named Prien, where it was discovered in the late 1800s, early 19th century, by a bunch of German archaeologists. It's now, other, uh, other um, copies of this inscription have been discovered in other countries around the world. The Prien Inscription was carved into a stone pillar in 9 B.C., So that's about 20 years into the reign of Caesar Augustus. And the main reason that the Prien inscription is a really big deal is that it records an announcement. It is announcing that the birthday of our God, is what it says, it's announcing that the birthday of our God, which is in reference to Caesar Augustus' birthday, which is September 23rd, will be, here's the announcement, 
His birthday will be the first day of the new year. His, day, his birthday will be the first day of a new year, which a whole new calendar is going to be created, and the first month of the year is called the month of Caesar. So, some guys on their birthday get birthday parties. Some guys on their birthday, you know, it becomes national holidays. Some guys get whole new calendars, whole new systems of understanding and recording time. So the main reason that this inscription is widely distributed to so many countries and the examples of this inscription have been found in so many places is because it was establishing throughout the Roman Empire a whole new way of paying attention to time and recording it. September 23rd is now going to be the new New Year's Day, the first day of the new month of the new year called the month of Caesar. But the other reason that the Prien inscription is a big deal, and frankly, the reason that it's still studied today and still paid attention to today is because it reveals some of Caesar Augustus's best political slogans. Yes, he had slogans. And the reason his slogans, uh, the reason that he had slogans is because power is not just about militaries, and power is not just about economics. Power is about what people believe. It's about how people think. It's about where people place their hope. It's about who people decide they're going to trust. That's real power. I would say that's life-changing power. And slogans, essentially, are just these short, memorable statements that people use to identify something core about themselves and then maybe something core about where they place their hope. A slogan says two things, in other words. It says some sort of claim, some sort of assertion of truth or opinion and then it also says that I am putting my hope in that claim. So here's some examples of uh, political slogans from our recent history. Late sort of anti-communist slogan from the uh, early Cold War era. Better dead than red. So the communists, young people, were the reds. And, and so if you were throwing this slogan around, you're basically saying, I am an anti-communist, and I'm placing my hope in the end of communism, right? That's what's, in, that's what's held in this memorable, it rhymes, it fits on a piece of poster board, better, better dead than red. A slogan from the civil rights movement, 1960s, black is beautiful, so if you're saying this slogan, you're saying, I'm black, and that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Or you're saying, I'm not black, but I support those who are black, and I think it's beautiful. I also think it's beautiful. And I'm placing my hope, my hope for society is that it will become one that truly values black people. And then, of course, there's all kinds of, all kinds of uh, presidential election slogans that people have used to identify themselves with a candidate. Sometimes the slogans even tell you why they're identifying themselves with the candidate. Like, I like Ike from 1952. Pretty funny to study uh, the history of presidential slogans. They are really silly and they become more and more intense. Uh, 1952, I like Ike. Uh, one from 2008, Hope and Change. So here's what I want to do today. I want to show you. I want to show you that uh, today... It's important that it's today, because it's the first Sunday after a big emotional presidential election, national election. And, and just as a reminder, this is not a reaction to the results of the election. Um, I wrote the core of this sermon before election day. This is intended to be a response to the whole season, the whole election season, and specifically to the way that the election season affected the church, because that's my concern primarily. 
And, and my goal is to offer a way, my goal for this talk this morning is to offer a way uh, for the church to be the church in this political and economic context that is faithful to the way that the early Christians lived and engaged in culture. And in order to do that, I want to show you some of the earliest Christian creeds or statements of core belief. And I want to show you that some of these short phrases that we still sing today, some of these short statements that we still say today are actually subversive, provocative, uh, dangerously powerful, countercultural alterations of Caesar's best political posters, of Caesar's best political slogans. I'm just going to give you three examples. Here's the first. In first century Rome, the fact that Caesar was in charge was indisputable. He was more powerful than the Roman Senate which had been the most powerful thing in existence for 500 years. That's why they elevated him to, and made him uh, emperor of the empire. That's why the Senate or the Republic becomes an empire. He was regarded as a god. The Prien inscription refers to him as divine Caesar. Saint, uh, Caesar Augustus was the boss. You, you owed him your allegiance. And the slogan that captured this was simply this, Caesar is Lord. That meant Caesar rules. That meant Caesar calls the shots. And all Romans obeyed, followed, pledged allegiance to Caesar because clearly, I mean, just look around, clearly Caesar is Lord. Early Christians, however, didn't believe that. Right? So it's not that they didn't recognize Caesar's power. They did recognize Caesar's power in many cases, painfully and graphically, as he demonstrated his power over the Christians through violence. But they recognized an even higher power than Caesar's power. And to be a Christian meant that you rooted your identity and you placed your hope in that higher power. That's what it meant. And so the earliest, the earliest Christian creed or the earliest simple statement of identity and hope was Jesus is Lord, right? It was a subversive, got to understand this, it was a subversive alteration of the most widely accepted political slogan of their time. It was an intentional act of graffiti over what was just embraced as indisputable truth and recognition of the common ultimate power of the world. And if you declared that, that Jesus was Lord, then you were also declaring that Caesar wasn't. There was no hiding this. The two statements are in contradiction. There can only be one person in charge. There can only be one Lord. And to stand in direct opposition to the religion of the state or to the imperial cult, as it was called, it wasn't an optional position for Christians to take. It was fundamental. It was foundational. This is what it meant to be a Christian, right? It wasn't, maybe I'll accept this sort of part of what it means. No, this is what it means. St. Paul is one of the earliest leaders of the Christian movement. He writes this to, get this, he writes this, we say this and we don't even think about it, he writes this to all the Christians in Rome. This is what he says, if you confess with your mouth, 
Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? I wonder if we can even imagine how radical this would have sounded. I imagine the poor dude who gets up to read Paul's letter to the Romans the first time in their new little church, and he reads, um, okay, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the typical Roman citizen is thinking, you're going to get killed. That's what's going to happen. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you're a dead man. But Paul says, if you confess Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I mean, core to being Christian in the first century, and what I'm trying to say this morning is core to being Christian in the 21st century, is submitting your life to Jesus. Is submitting your life, meaning belonging to Jesus, serving Jesus, rooting your identity in Jesus, grounding your hope in Jesus, because, simply put, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. No wonder so many Christians were killed by their own government in the first three centuries. Here's a second example of a Roman political slogan which Christians altered, they graffitied over, in order to communicate their identity and their hope. It's this slogan, Caesar saves. Listen to the announcement about the new calendar from the Prien inscription carved into a pillar in 9 B.C., I'll read it to you. It's kind of small up here. It's what it says. Whereas providence that orders all our lives is in her display of concern and generosity on our behalf, adorned our lives with the highest good by giving us Augustus, whom she has filled with virtue for the benefit of humanity and has in her goodness granted us and those who will come after us a savior who has made war to cease and who shall put everything in order. Don't worry, everyone. Don't worry, everyone. Caesar saves. It's going to be okay, right? Caesar will rescue us because not only is Caesar Lord, Caesar saves. In fact, he was born to be a savior. There's actually many examples of this kind of announcement in Roman history because whenever a war would end or a battle would be won, a messenger would ride into a village whose safety had been threatened and would give a declaration of good news. And there's a special word for this kind of declaration of good news. It's evangelion. It's where we get the word evangelist. It's ultimately where we get the word gospel. So the messenger was the evangelist who was bringing the good news to the people. What was the good news? You've been saved, right? You've been rescued. So-and-so, Roman general, whatever, won the battle. He's in charge. He saved you. He's the good guy. You can trust him. Or sometimes the good news would be the birth of a ruler's son who would one day, he's going to be your champion, he's going to be your savior, you can place your hope in him right now even though he's just a baby. So the Prien inscription is the evangelion or the good news, the good message that September 23rd is the, is the new New Year's Day because it was the day that Providence gave us divine Augustus as a savior. And this becomes... Uh, a major Roman slogan, Caesar saves. So there's a threat from another nation. It's okay because Caesar saves. Or there's this internal squabble within Rome. It's going to be fine because Caesar saves. But the Christians are declaring what? Jesus is Lord. And so now they're under threat from Caesar. And so their message, their evangelion, their good news becomes 
Jesus saves, right? Jesus will fight our battles. They probably had a little attitude about it. That's why I put the, Jesus will rescue us. Really, this is not, this was, this was conflict. This was a crash of fundamental ideas. Uh, we will place our hope in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus will save us. We're going all in, all in on this, right? He is Lord and he is our savior. Here's an interesting detail, just sort of a sidebar. I think this is fascinating. The best translation of the word evangelion is actually glad tidings. Uh, and the reason that's the best translation is because evangelion is plural. So nobody brings a glad tiding, right? You bring glad tidings. You bring good newses in Rome. You bring gospels. It's always plural. There were Greek and Roman saviors in the past. There's going to be more Roman saviors in the future. And so in Roman political speech, there were good announcements. There were glad tidings. There were many gospels. But in Christian speech, there is the gospel, right? There is a singular announcement of good news, and that is this, Jesus saves so the Prien inscription refers to Augustus as a savior, but Christians embrace Jesus as the savior. Come on. That's good, isn't it? Jesus is Lord, invites us to root our identity in Jesus. This is our creed. Jesus saves, that slogan, invites us to place our hope in Jesus. This is our gospel. This is our message. This is our singular announcement. And then let me give you just one more example of a Roman slogan that we altered to be, in, and, and it's very important, especially following big emotional national elections. Number one, Caesar's Lord. That's the first Roman slogan. Number two, Roman slogan, Caesar saves. And then a third slogan that was altered, and it was altered to communicate the true power of Jesus. This is important. The true power of Jesus, it's the slogan, Peace of Rome. In Latin, it was the Pax Romana. The reign of Augustus was so complete. Uh, the dominance of Augustus was so entire. The power of Augustus so impossible to challenge that the Romans, in the time of Christ, they would celebrate. They would, they would throw parties and celebrate the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And what that essentially meant was that Rome was so powerful that any threat was crushed. Any threat was crushed. He governed over, politically speaking, the longest history of peace in the, in the world, ever. Right? Rome was at peace, and I'll put that in quotes, because it was the strongest kid on the block, and nobody challenged him. If they did, they'd get beat up. They'd get crushed. So you never stood up to Caesar Augustus. The Jews were allowed to exist in Rome, in the Roman Empire, but they were totally controlled by Rome. Always in the background of the New Testament, even with all the tension between Jesus and the Jews, Jesus and the Jewish tradition, Jesus and the Jewish structure, always in the background, have you noticed this? There's Roman soldiers. They're always in the background. There's always these Roman soldiers. They called it peace. It was the peace of Rome, but it took a lot of soldiers to keep the peace. So in a sense, yes, there was a level of peace, a level of order, but there was also a lot of violence. 
And it wasn't large-scale war, but it was all these little small skirmishes on the outside, little conflicts which were quickly and violently put down. In other words, the peace that Rome offered was essentially the result of power crushing anything that got in its way. You didn't have a problem as long as you didn't stand up to Caesar. And we see this playing out really clearly in the last days of Jesus' life, in the last days of Jesus' ministry, when the Jews want to kill Jesus, but they can't do anything with him, right? Without the permission of the Roman government, specifically the Roman governor, Pilate. Because they're in Jerusalem, they're a long way from Rome. The Roman Empire still extends out there, but the guy in charge is Pilate, just this governor. And Pilate says in the last few scenes of Jesus' life, after he's beat up all night, they bring him to Pilate, they want him to be killed. Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. John 19. And he's going to set Jesus free. He's going to let him go. But then the Jews change their accusation from he claims to be God, which is what they really care about, to he claims to be a king. The Jews convince Pilate to permit the execution of Jesus by shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. I mean, the Jews are saying that, which is hard to imagine, but they push the right button. That's it's, it's all that matters. They just they say the right thing at the right time, they push the right button, and Pilate famously washes his hands of the whole matter. Why does he do that? To keep the peace. To keep the peace of Rome. You do not confront Caesar. You do not stand up to him. In, in Rome, peace was maintained through control. Nobody questions it. When a little girl asks her mom, Mom, why are all those, why are those soldiers over there? Why are, that's just the Pax Romana, honey. That's just, they're just keeping the peace. That's what we do. This is not the kind of peace that Jesus comes to bring. Do you know that the Apostle Paul, who's the major writer of the New Testament, writes a lot of letters to new churches, and he begins every one of his letters to Christians with a greeting that includes a variation of this Roman slogan. Did you know that? Paul writes, May the grace of God and the peace of Christ be with you. That's how he starts every letter. I mean, the first readers of his letters would have been initially very surprised by this phrase because he doesn't say, May the grace of God and the peace of Rome be with you. He says, may the grace of God and the peace of Christ be. What are you talking about? What is he talking? What kind of peace is this? When the only kind of peace you can imagine is based on control, and anyone who is different, anyone who thinks differently is not welcome here, and they will be threatened by the keeper of the peace. And then you hear Paul begin his letters with a greeting that is a blessing about a different kind of peace. The grace of God and the peace of Christ. I mean, this is really pretty radical. This is Paul's greeting. This is the way he's teaching Christians to say hello. Friends, this should be the first thing out of our mouths. Grace and peace to you. The first readers have got to be thinking, Paul is talking about a whole different realm of peace. He's talking about a whole different level of peace, and he is, because the peace that he's talking about is not rooted in fear. It's a peace that's rooted in grace. Grace to you. I will welcome you 
because God has welcomed me. That's grace. I will offer kindness to you even when you don't deserve kindness. That's grace. Why will I do that? Because the peace of Christ reigns here. The peace of Christ reigns here. It could, we could be warring street gangs that, you know, every once in a while decide to run up the flag and everybody puts their guns down and they come in and it's understood there's a peace that reigns here. Paul's establishing Christian churches. He's establishing spiritual communities that are made up of different races, different cultures, uh, and in, in which there's a whole different kind of reality that's going to reign here. And it's a truth that is higher and it's more lasting than any ethnic claim, any national claim. And that, Paul is saying, is the foundation of these Christian communities. And it's not the Pax Romana. It's not the peace of Rome. It's the Pax Christi. It's the peace of Christ. This is one of the earliest Christian symbols. It probably is a more popular Christian symbol in the first two centuries than the cross. It's like the equivalent of the Christian flag or maybe an early version of the Christian flag and they'd run up the Pax Christi so that all these people who were becoming captivated by the love of Jesus, even though we're all different races, we're all different backgrounds, we probably disagree on a lot of things, we come into this understanding that the peace of Christ rules over this place. Or to say it another way, to say this a different way, just in other words, if, if Caesar is Lord, or to modernize it a little bit, if to say that the state is in charge and to say that the state will save us or the state will fix what's broken, if that's what we're saying, then the best we can experience and the best we can offer is the peace of the state. Do you follow me? If the state is in charge, if the state is Lord, and it's the state's job to bring peace, then the best we can hope for and the best we can offer is the peace of the state. And what I want to say is, friends, Christians were never meant to settle for such an impotent solution. The state has never been our identity, and the state has never been our hope. It has never been. For the church to tie our identity to the state, for the church to place our hope in the hope of the state is to settle. But worse than that, it's actually to abandon our role as ambassadors of the only true source of real restoration, which is the peace of Christ. Now we're called by Jesus to be in the world. We should be participating in politics. We should have sort of a shared interest in common communities and in public policy. And politics should matter to us, in my opinion. I think we should care about it. Uh, So of course if we care about it, we're going to get emotionally involved in it. Of course it's going to matter to us. But what I'm trying to give this morning is just a, a simple reminder of who you are if you're a Christian and where your true hope lies. So to summarize our hope with any of the recent political slogans like Stronger Together or I'm with Her or Make America Great Again, friends, it's simply to miss our calling as Christians. It's to settle for a solution that's impotent in comparison to a real solution. In fact, the only solution that has a chance of making a difference in a divided world, which is the peace of Christ. Now, it's happened a lot. It's happened before. It happens all the time. It happened right away. In fact, Paul himself addresses, him, addresses this problem in his letter to Christians in this town called Galatia. 
He starts it by, by calling the Galatians foolish Galatians. And then he corrects them saying this, there is no Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Is Paul denying racial differences, do you think? Can he not see that there's a Jew and there's a Gentile and they're in the same church? Of course he's not denying that. Is he choosing to ignore the somewhat awkward fact that, that some are slaves and some are slave owners in the same church? Is he choosing to ignore that? No, he's not. Is he pretending there's no gender distinction with all of the social and political uh, consequences of gender at the time? No, he's not. Is he so naive to think that devoted Jesus followers won't disagree with other devoted Jesus followers on public policy, on governmental policies and issues? No, he's not. He's simply saying that none of these things are as important as a shared devotion to Jesus as Lord, okay? Who creates the possibility, or which is what creates the possibility of peace in Christ. So if my political views, which are important to me, but if they matter more to me than my devotion to Jesus as Lord, or if my ethnic background, which of course shapes who I am, it matters, but if that matters more to me than my devotion to Jesus as Lord, or if my economic convictions matter more to me than my devotion to Jesus as Lord, or if my name matters more to me, my family name, than my devotion to Jesus as Lord, then ultimately I cannot offer real peace to anyone with whom I disagree. Oh man, I'll make a real big difference in the world as long as you agree with me on about 12 things. Then I'll make a difference in your life. I'm sorry, I'm just not interested in that. And as I read the scriptures, that wasn't Christianity in the beginning anyway, right? right? We're talking about something that enables us to experience a reality of peace in the midst of all kinds of differences and disagreements. And it also enables us to do more than that, offer peace, actual peace, in a way that transcends and crosses lines of nationality and race and party. Next week, I'm going to talk about how we get along with people that we disagree with. So you can pray with me on that one. (laughs) Today, I'm simply trying to remind those of us who are Christian to be Christian. Okay? To be Christian. Get the slogan right. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not our savior. Jesus saves. Our goal is not the peace of Rome. Our goal is higher than that. Our goal is the peace of Christ. To experience the peace of Christ in the church, in this church, so that we can share the peace of Christ with the divided world. Amen? Amen. Friends, this is our common creed. This might be the only thing we have in common, but that'll be good enough for us to make a real difference in this world. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together.
Well, God, have mercy on us. In your wisdom that is beyond our own, you have called us to be ambassadors of your character, identity, and mission in this world. Us. You've given that job to us. And so we pray to follow Jesus, and we pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and we pray to be involved in the world, but to have a higher hope, a deeper identity, so we can make a real difference. I pray for grace as we wrestle with ramifications and realities in our culture. Differences and disagreements, even sometimes in our own homes, and absolutely in our church. I pray that you would Give us the uh, strong grace we need to be Christian people, uh, to be followers of Jesus Christ and ambassadors of a peace that transcends differences. We need your help with this, Lord. This is beyond our capacity without you, and so we pray for that. And may it begin here. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Friends,